Ah, busy old day on the radio and plenty to catch up on. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Such was our assistance in that regard that, as you said, uh, British intelligence services in their post-mortem after the war said a neutral Ireland was actually more beneficial to the British war effort than a, 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 an Ireland which joined the Allies. What was the food like? <laughs> and now you're it about... You, oh, you see, I got that out. You're about to... It's absolutely well, it, gorgeous. No, it, 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 was it, it, was, it was gorgeous, but I nearly had a cardiac arrest when I, when I got the receipt. <laughs> He carried great dignity within him and forbearance. Um, but he was also somebody who was detached. You wouldn't find him socialising now after the proceedings. He was obsessed with data and administration and statistics. He was always composing memoranda which drove his colleagues mad. And we'll start on today with Claire Byrne. Supermarket price wars. Adam Maguire was talking to Claire about falling prices with one retailer and the others that might follow. First this morning, after a year of rocketing food prices at the tills, are we about to benefit from a supermarket grocery price war? Well, as you heard in the news bulletin, Tesco Ireland has announced a price cut on what they're calling 700 essential products. So will the other retailers follow suit? I'm joined now by Adam Maguire, RT business journalist, and Adam, over the past year, has been keeping an eye on our inflation shopping basket. Adam, you're very welcome you? back. So Tesco, tell us what they have announced this morning and what sorts of products are we going to see come down in price? Yeah, so as you say, it's it's 700, what they say, are essential uh, products, an average price cut of 10%. So that means we'll see some going down by more than 10%, some by, by less than that. Uh, and they say it's going to cover everything from, you know, grocery items, food items, toiletries, beauty products, uh, you know, household cleaning items, not so on across the board and to, to give some examples they've only given a few so far of the 700 uh, Tesco sweet potato oven chips uh, will, will go from 330 to 219 so that's a fairly significant is. Uh, price cut um, their uh, balsamic vinegar I'm not sure how essential you'd call balsamic vinegar but it's gone from 550 down to 332 again a decent enough price cut uh, we have a few brand so of expensive products. at 550 yeah it really yeah. is yeah but down to a slightly more reasonable price uh, Flavin's uh, a kilo of of progress oats slightly less significant price cut there 249 down to uh, 235 so 14 cent off that but again uh, every, everything is welcome uh, and uh, yeah you, you know a toothpaste toilet roll uh, again own brand stuff by Tesco uh, pesto pizzas uh, and, and uh, pampers another one as well for, uh, a pack of size 4 essentials down from 999 to 950 so 49 cent mm-hmm. cut there so it's it, it, the, the, the examples they've given it's it's a decent enough range of grocery items but obviously a lot more that we need to find out. And listeners might have heard uh, Michael McGrath there, there was a clip on the news bulletin of him speaking on Morning Ireland this morning. He says that he expects other retailers to follow suit soon. Now, that's likely, isn't it, that the others will follow? More than likely. No one wants to be seen to be sitting back while their, their rival is the one who's who's helping consumers by cutting prices. And we've seen it happen before quite recently. People remember back in April, Lidl knocked 10 cent off the price of an own brand litre of milk. Uh, within hours, the other retailers came out and did the same thing. We saw it repeated with butter and bread. Again, there were cuts in the own brand price and it was almost, you know, an hour. By the end of the day, everyone else everyone had, had made the it. same thing. So you'd imagine, uh, I'd say, you know, possibly by the end... By by the end of today or maybe by the end of tomorrow we'll see some of the other retailers come out with something similar mm-hmm. maybe not the exact same products but trying to show that across the board they're, they're cutting prices as well if we're lucky we'll then see Tesco come back and try and one-up them and tit for tat probably less likely for that to happen but we are probably going to see other prices come down which is okay. good news It is good news for uh, consumers Now we know that food inflation has been racing ahead of most other things that we buy What do we know about the latest figures on that? Yeah so the most recent figures we have 
from the CSO uh, cover up to April and they show that food inflation was at 13.1%. Really, really high. Now, it's actually down slightly. It was 13.3% in the year to March, but it's still way above the overall rate of inflation, which is high enough as it is. Uh, and it's actually, even though the overall rate of inflation is actually easing, food inflation has stayed kind of stubbornly high and it's actually been lagging behind everything else as well. And, you know, in some cases it's 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 actually been higher in yeah, certain products. Yeah, because 13.1% is the the average of the food inflation. Yeah. So you've got some products that have increased in price way above that. Yeah, and, and a lot of the essentials as well, like butter uh, was up 18.9%, milk 24.1%, bread 14.1%, chicken prices up 16%, eggs 18.3%. That's actually lower. Back in March, they're around 20% higher for for eggs, so yeah. but but again, it's it's you know when you look at and pasta uh, as another example, flour, uh, the the kind of what would you think of core items in your shopping basket have been more than thirteen percent higher year on year. Uh, um, so you know it's it's really taken time. It's it's actually is it lagged behind because we see you know food producers might have higher energy bills a year ago. It takes time then for that to filter through and actually make its way to the till, and that's why we're seeing. Uh, um, grocery prices lagging behind the overall rate of inflation mm-hmm. uh, and we it's not just energy prices we've, we've spoken about this before everything else is having an effect the, the supply chain due to COVID was still it took a long time for that to get straightened out then we had the war in Ukraine had a knock-on effect on supplies of certain products climate change as well is a big thing because you know certain uh, um, harvests have been affected by drought and by forest fire we spoke olive about oil. the wheat ol- olive oil the wheat that's used for pasta uh, all of these things having coming together to, to push up the price and it takes a long time for that to, to wash out the system. So going back then to Tesco, this list of products that they mm-hmm. said they're going to cut prices on, are they mostly own brand products? Yeah, we, if we look at the, the list they gave there, you know, the 11 that they that they itemised, seven of them are own brand products. And they're the ones that they probably have the most leeway on, they have the most control over the price and they have the bigger margin as well that they can decide to, to, to trim back on. So, you know, the examples I gave, for example, the the uh, sweet potato, uh, bag of sweet potato, Tesco o- oven chips, that's a cut of around 33% or so. So significant price cut um, uh, on that. But the Flavins uh, product is down around 4 or 5%. So much smaller cut. Yes. So you, when you look at the list, the own brand prices are coming down by a lot more. The branded products, it, it's, a, it's a slightly less significant cut that we're seeing there because they've less control over that. Adam McGuire from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning on the Ryan Tuberty Show, facing the Leaving Cert with the good advice from Avian Shields, finding a path that works for you. I posted this little thing yesterday on Instagram about the Leaving Cert and saying, look, it's not, it's, it's not, a, it's an important exam, sure, but it's not a test mm-hmm. on who you are as a person. Uh, are you a good person, yeah. a kind person, a decent person? That, that just was off the top of my head. But you, I got a huge response to it, but it was yours that really jumped out at me. You, you sent me a really thoughtful message about your own experience. What, what, what made you do that? What, what, what was happening there? Well, I was actually on my way to uh, St. James Hospital. So I was in the back of the car and I was just scrolling through Instagram as you do. And I see the uploaded message, not really thinking anything of it, I just went in. So I wonder what Ryan posted. And I seen that you did, where you were talking about, you know, believing certain students, wishing them the best of luck. And then by the time I listened to it all, I said, that's exactly what I wanted to get through to people for the last two years when I was doing the Leaving Cert Applied System. It's not about your academics. It's not about what I think you get on a piece of paper. There's more to a person. There's more to a person than A's or B's or C's. I did the Leaving Cert Applied System thinking that, you know, I was going in and it was going to be the worst decision for me. Mm. But I wanted to change the perspective of that for other people. 
and I hopefully I did that one in my school in Our Lady's College Green Hills. Okay, that's Our Lady's College Green Hills in Drogheda. And yes, it you, is. you were in school there and did you, I mean, going into say the fifth, because fifth year is where it all kicks off, really. Fifth year, like uh-huh, the, yeah. the, the Leaving Search is a two year program, as you know. So mm-hmm. going into fifth year, were you okay with school as a, as a system or were you were you nervous uh, student or wh- where were you at? Yes, yeah, so I would have, I wouldn't have had the best start in, in the education system. Okay. Um, I wouldn't have the best outlook on it either. So I was always a bit nervous about it, but I just, you have to do the junior cycle. So I just got through that. And now I didn't actually have to do it. I did the predicted grades. Mm-hmm. So then when I went into this year, I decided to do two months to see how it kind of got on with the with the normal, the traditional leaving cert. Yeah. So I did September and October. And then when it got to the end of October, the amount of pressure I had on me, you were the leaving cert, the leaving cert, the leaving cert. It's all that mattered. Yeah. And we already had the exams and in the, in the second month piling up on us and I said I can't do this so I went home to mum and dad and I just said to them what what do you think I should do because you're after hearing so many people say such bad things about it and they said what would you be happy doing and I knew in my heart I'd be happy doing LCA it would give me more time to do hobbies outside of school that I would enjoy yeah. like running and reading which all had to stop because I never had time to do them for the past two months when I was non-stop studying for the next um, classroom exam so they said go in do it because if you're happy we're happy and that's that's where it kind of all started what what is the Leaving Cert applied how does it work so it's a foundation of project based assessments that's what it's majority is majority is assessed through the two years now don't get me wrong you still have seven exams at the end of sixth year but you're not reliant on them like it's if you can, you have those projects to fall back on if you're not an like if you're not a person that can do exams. Yeah, so you were able to focus on things that you wanted to learn. So you didn't do home economics yeah. like they were still, you know, like the exam no, yesterday. No, so we did ho- we did hotel catering and tourism. Practical, so we got practical, to go practical. Local, yes, exactly. Things that are going to help you every day in everyday life. Yeah, I mean, it sounds much, even more as sensible, if not more. Uh, than the actual leaving cert itself, but but you were you you enjoyed that experience. The leaving cert applied. You did that for yes. fifth year and sixth year, and you mm-hmm. were. Able to, it sounds to me that you were able to breathe again. That you were able to enjoy life yes. a bit more, rather than that that awful runaway train that is the actual leaving cert. Yes, a hundred percent, definitely. I was able to promote it a lot in the school and take down the the wall between the leaving cert that was in our, the leaving cert system and the leaving cert applied and to connect them together because the other head girl, Zoe, she was in the normal leaving cert system. So we were brought together because I was the other head girl. So the two of us were able to bring the two systems together and for there not to be such a it, to be such a taboo subject yeah. with LCA anymore. But, but, and for people to learn more about it. But Avian, what what happened to the, the shy, upset young person <laughs> two months into fifth year uh, didn't really want to go to school. How, you, you've jumped now a couple of years, and now you're suddenly your, your joint head girl. I I don't know, Ryan. What happened? I don't know. I think well, we got told that somebody had to um, be nominated in every class in sixth year to, in in fifth year at the time to be head girl in sixth year by Miss Savage. She was one of my favourite teachers ever. She was amazing, and she said, "Will somebody be nominated in our class? We can't have nobody in LCA. It'll look bad." And I said, oh, no one is, is going ahead for it. So I said, OK, look, I'll, I'll try, but I'm not writing a speech. And she said, you don't have to. 
But then I was thinking over the next two weeks, I have to do my speech. I'll be, I'll be upset if I don't try. Mm. So then I left it till the night before being avian, stayed up the whole night at the desk and just put my heart and soul out in the speech and tried to connect with that person sitting at the back of the class that felt lost and felt like that the typical leaving cert wasn't going to be for them. Amazing. So I wrote my speech. I tried to connect with as many people as possible and lucky enough, I, I got elected one of the head girls. So I was delighted. I felt like that was where the journey then also started. You are amazing. I love your, your spirit and your passion for this because... <laughs> Thank you, you, Ryan. No, I really mean it. You're talking the language. Like even, I know this might sound strange, but even on the toy show, I was always trying to reach out to the kid who was at the back of the class who was a bit shy yeah. and a bit less, a bit unlikely to be picked, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what yeah. you just did there. What you did there is encapsulate everything about what school should be, but too often isn't. And, you know, that yeah. idea of saying... It's not for everyone. You don't need six A1s. There is a weird media, no. media, and I'm in the media, so I'm not going to knock everyone around me because I'm part of the story, of course. But there is a weird mm-hmm. fetishization of the seven A1s thing. It's, that's not normal. I wish you well if you get no. them, but it's just not, yes. not everyone is, is going to be Stephen Hawking scientist, you know, going around the place. No, so people have normal lives and correct. things going on behind the scenes. That's right. And now, it, I'm, yeah. I'm here to prove to people as well that you can get into college. I'm going, I did my PLC course. Yeah. in TV and film and I'm, I've gotten all my distinctions and I've gotten into the well hopefully on CAO points but I've gotten my distinctions and I'm hopefully going to DCU now in September to study what? Communications and, me- communications and media I mean, so you can that's amazing there. you yeah. can brilliant Avian Shields for the Ryan Tupperty Show and on today with Claire Byrne is Ireland neutral? Now, though, later on this month, the future of Ireland's neutrality and its ability to defend itself will be up for discussion as part of the Consultative Forum on International Security Policy. This country's position in an increasingly perilous world is the subject of a new book called Is Ireland Neutral? The Many Myths of Irish Neutrality. And the author is Conor Gallagher, crime and security correspondent with the Irish Times. And Conor is here. Conor, you're very welcome and and congratulations on the new and very interesting book. And it's so timely because we've had a lot of debate around the question of neutrality lately. And we've been asking just how neutral this country really is and what it means to us. Can you give us your best attempt? I know this is difficult, but your best attempt at defining Irish neutrality. Yeah, it's an incredibly difficult question. And when I started writing this book, I had no idea what a difficult task that would be. Um, I mean, neutrality is a concept that's as old as, you know, nascent states. You know, Greek city-states were claiming neutrality in various wars back in ancient Greece. But it's only in um, kind of the 19th century, which has been called the golden age of neutrality, that it's first kind of codified in international law. Um, That's when you have Switzerland being recognised as neutral by the the major European powers. And then in 1907, you have the Hague uh, Convention, which uh, details the rights and obligations of neutral nations. But unfortunately, still doesn't give us a definition of what is a neutral nation. Mm -hmm. So Ireland has developed its own entirely unique version of neutrality. And it's really up for debate whether the the term neutrality applies. The government has variously called it traditional neutrality, qualified neutrality and, and most recently military neutrality. So at times that's meant, you know, 
staying completely out of uh, wars, uh, such as the Spanish Civil War, which I think could be argued was the high point of, of Irish neutrality. Uh, that's when uh, de Valera's government um, uh, imposed laws that basically forbid people to go and fight in the Spanish Civil War on either side. And he even sent a kind of a, a nascent kind of peacekeeping force or proto-peacekeeping force to, uh, to other ports to ensure that uh, munitions and supplies weren't going to either side in Spain. Now, of course, that didn't work. We had the Blue Certs went to flight, fight on, on Franco's side and, and the IRA went to fight on uh, the Republican side. But it's, it was the highest point in the government's efforts to enforce neutrality. And neutrality was important then when we were a very new state to distance ourselves from our colonial masters of the past, wasn't it? We're uh, not with those guys. That's what we wanted to tell the world. Yeah, that uh, that's probably the most uh, broadly accepted reason why we were neutral in World War uh, Two, um, Because, um, it, you know, De Valera is thought as a way of uh, carving out our own uh, kind of reputation on the world stage as being the, the, the newest kid on the block. It was not, go- you know, the only dominion of the British Empire that didn't join in uh, the, the the war on the Allied side. There are other reasons, though, of course, which are arguably just as important. Number one is our defence forces was all but non-existent from a defence point of view, meaning we, we couldn't have afforded to defend ourselves if we were a belligerent in the war, never mind going on any kind of expeditionary uh, endeavours. And then, of course, there was the, the very real threat of civil war. Uh, you know, we were still only, uh, well, 15 years or so after the end of the civil war. Um, you still had this massive... Um, uh, depth of feeling uh, against the British Empire and De Valera knew that if he was to join with the Allies it could very uh, easily reinvigorate the mm-hmm. IRA and who, and that message might spread beyond and, and you might actually have a, some sort of civil war. And you write about the interesting conclusion of MI5 in the aftermath of the war. What did they decide about Ireland's neutrality? Yeah, so I, I spent a good bit of the book kind of going through maybe the lesser known ways we assisted the Allies uh, in the war. So it's what De Valera called, you know, the certain consideration we gave the Allies. That, uh, uh, But this went far beyond a certain consideration to the point where, you know, neutrality was basically a, a total misnomer. You know, and one of those, some of those ways are uh, very well known, like uh, repatriating Allied pilots and including sometimes repatriating their planes, including sometimes if a pilot crash-landed, giving them a nice big uh, banquet lunch and then sending them back uh, across the border to Northern Ireland and then fixing their planes and sending the planes back and then giving the the intelligence on the planes to the Allies. But I also wanted to focus on the lesser-known aspects, and uh, including the intelligence war. And, you know, uh, the, the Defence Forces Intelligence Bureau is then called G2. Um, they were at times basically a joint intelligence partner to the Allies, to MI5 and MI6 and the uh, OSS, the the forerunner, the CIA. They got every cooperation they could have asked for, including, you know, when German spies parachuted into Ireland, they were almost immediately caught and uh, were interrogated. And the results of that interrogation were were passed uh, immediately to the Allies. Uh, You know, the weather reports is obviously quite famous. The the weather reading taken at Blacksod Lighthouse, which um, um, uh, persuaded Eisenhower to delay D-Day by one day, thereby saving thousands and thousands of troops and arguably ensuring the success of the landing. Uh, But at the same time, 
German spies, there's one anecdote which I thought was quite illustrative of German spies having to get weather reports in Ireland by looking at barometer, barometers in uh, shop windows. Um, so such was our assistance in that regard that, as you said, uh, British intelligence services in their post-mortem after the war said a neutral Ireland was actually more beneficial to the British war effort than a, 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 an Ireland which joined the Allies. That's because if Ireland joined the war, we would have, the Brits would have had to garrison it. They would have had to give us lots of uh, anti-air defences uh, and that sort of thing, which were in very, very short supply in the early parts of the war. And it would have meant that, that thousands and thousands of people who joined the British, for, Irish people who joined the British forces and more so the British war machine, the British uh, factories and th- th- that were built building this war machine, they wouldn't have been available because most of them would have been conscripted into an Irish army. They would have been sitting around uh, on Ireland for an invasion that might never have come. So, uh, and, but, they were, they were, the Brits were able to have their cake and eat it too because they still got all this intelligence they got the cooperation. Info. Yeah. So why didn't Ireland join NATO after the war? So this is one of the other kind of foundational myths of, of, of Irish neutrality. Um, and even if you look at a 1996 white paper document uh, on what Ireland's foreign policy should be, and that states very clearly that Ireland didn't join NATO because our commitment to neutrality. And that is bogus, completely wrong. <laughs> Ireland was very much interested in joining NATO when it uh, was uh, being kicked around uh, in, in 1940, uh, well, start in 1946, but in the late 40s. Um, the British approached... Uh, the inter-party government and our Minister for External Affairs, Sean McBride, and said, would you be interested if, you know, some maiden approach, what would happen there to be a founding member of NATO, only one of a small number? Um, and Sean McBride and the inter-party government saw an opportunity here. They believed Ireland was really strategically vital to uh, the Western countries in the Cold War because of its location, because of its uh, agricultural output, um, because if the Russians did invade or if the Soviets invaded, it would be the last fallback point for uh, you know NATO forces. So they really thought, OK, we have an opportunity here. Let's say to uh, the Western allies, uh, we will join NATO if you if we get the six counties back. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the the informal invite went out. We sent an aid memoir back saying, um, listen, we're very interested. We are very much anti-communist. We're very worried about the communists. Uh, but we can't do this while uh, this partition is in effect. And they hoped that would open a conversation that the Americans would pressure the British to give us back the six counties. But... Unfortunately for, for the inter-party government, the Americans basically told us to, to get lost. Um, they, Ireland was would be nice to have in NATO, but not vital in any way. You know, you had improvements in long-range aircraft that, you know, could kind of bypass Ireland from a defence point of view. And they also had Northern Ireland in NATO, you know, so they had a good chunk of the country that was already... So they obviously looked at the Irish negotiating position and thought, ah, nah, you're all right. We're not going to get involved in that. Exactly. They did make some limited efforts, um, actually interestingly, to go through the church to maybe pressure. They asked uh, the, uh, John Charles McQuaid to maybe put pressure on McBride. They were friends. If Ireland would join NATO with no strings attached. Mm-hmm. But uh, even though it was a very Catholic uh, government and, and society, they told McQuaid as well to get lost. And so we said no to NATO, or the Americans basically said no to us, and we framed it as us saying no to NATO. Um, and neutrality didn't feature in that b- debate one little bit, according to the documents I saw. And there was another document in 1959 where the DFA were again asked to look at, should we join NATO? And they decided we shouldn't. They gave a list of reasons. Neutrality did not feature there once. Connor Gallagher there. His book is called Is Ireland Neutral? From today with Claire Byrne. 
And on the live line, Martine called Joe to talk about something she saw when she was shopping in M&S. You were in M&S. You're, you're a librarian, so you're very astute, very observant. And what, what did you observe, Martine? Well, I, I was going through um, by the, you know, through the barn doors, as I call them, into the, where the wine is. Okay. And the first thing that confronted me was a display uh, with loads of bottles of gin and in the middle of the display uh, were uh, cards saying uh, thank you teachers a selection of six cards okay so the the uh, this was to suggest to parents uh, uh, i presume to buy bottles of gin to give to their children to present along with the cards to the teacher at the end of the year so i i just i thought something was a bit off about it and okay. um yeah, I didn't say anything to the management at the time because I, I was in kind of in a hurry through and uh, I just kind of thought about, I took a photo as I was passing and asked one or two friends, Is, uh, what do you think of that? And they said, mm-hmm. oh, that's a bit off. So I uh, said, oh, uh, I'll send this into Liveline because I know it's something uh, that, uh, the type of thing that you have covered, you know, especially when we're very conscious about um keeping alcohol away from the consciousness of children as much as possible. As best, as best you but, can, yeah. So you've sent in yeah. a photograph. We're going to tweet that photograph now. But it's quite clear. Sure. It's actually quite a nice display symmetrically. It's there, It's And there's three levels and there's the old wooden crates, more, yeah, you know, to give that rustic feel. And then there's uh, fair... Is it just a one gin they're advertising or is there so I many gins? I think there gins. were several gins. There were so much many. There's about gins, 700 gins now, anyway. There but, are, there are. There and then slap bang in the middle is this big... Again, it's not a few cards just thrown there. Is it? It's, it's a display case containing cards saying "Thank you, teacher" or "I love my teacher." Or, and uh, is yeah. there any sign to? Obviously, there's an inference there, Martine. Which you're well, there's a to. great inference. That's that's okay. what got me immediately because this inference is buy this uh, for teacher and I'm sure teacher would love love that and I'm sure teacher would end up legless uh, if they got everyone <laughs> got the same bottle of gin. <laughs> it could be kind of like a car crash. Well, some teachers know? I've spoken to could do with a bottle of gin at the end of a day after have been mitered yeah. and run ragged. But anyway, um, but, it, but it, um, yeah, okay, you were saying uh, people do give bottles of wine to teacher, don't they, at the end of the year? Yeah, yeah, I suppose they, they do. Uh, I haven't, like, it's a long time since I've been in school. I'm 62. Okay. Uh, but I, I, uh, I certainly, we didn't, I don't think we gave anything to teacher in our day. Well, that's Martine. Then Pat called Joe. He was in Dartry. I'm a Californian, but I mean, at the moment, I'm in Dartry, spruising okay. up a house here. But explain to people in Ireland where Dartry is. Oh, it's Dublin Four, Dublin Six, darling. Dublin Six. Um, yeah, kind of. But it's very, very euphoric,al anyway. And it's it's euphoric. and it's but it's in the shadow of Milltown, is it? Or the, oh, the shadow sh- of Rathgar? It would be uh, a south facing, I'd say, Joseph. Yes. Okay, and Dartry is famous for when we were growing up, the Dartry Laundry. Now, Pat. well, that that would be one of the landmarks, I presume. One of the yeah. big, one of the laundries in Dublin. I was going up was the, the Dartry Laundry, the Swastika Laundry, and there was another oh, one. Oh, I thought the, the, the I the thought they would have been. A, okay. I thought they would have been a, been above all that here, uh, Joe. Anyway, getting back to the subject matter at hand. Yes. Um, there was. Yes. Um, I went to a certain hostelry uh, the weekend. 
on Sunday, meet a few friends. Cut a long yeah. story short, I nearly had a cardiac arrest okay. when I seen the, pr- the price of the roast of the day. Okay. And I don't know whether they paid the, tri- the chefs and everybody else travel time on a Sunday, but that's not really my problem. But uh, apparently during, during the week, not apparently, uh, specifically during the week, the week, the same roast is 17 yo-yos. Okay. All of a sudden it goes to 24 on a weekend. Wow. And would you want, you want to name the poor? We live in a free country. No, Perish the Thought, uh, Joe, uh, Searson's in Ballsbridge. Uh, okay, Ballsbridge, well, well known pub, historic pub. It's where Patrick Kavanagh, he lived down the road. Patrick Kavanagh, when he got his mail uh, of a morning, he'd walk down to Searson's, position himself at the end of the bar, order a ball of malt, a ball of malt, and probably a pint of Guinness, but a ball of malt, and he'd open his mail. It was his office. And it was many an office for many of the, the bohemian uh, artists in Dublin. Anyway, you're in Searson's, the famous pub. You're saying 17 quid for the road, for the Carvery Monday to Friday. Yes. And t- it it zooms up to 24. It zooms up to 24. And like say, wow. Dick Turpin wore, wore a mask when he was um, oh, when he was a high, highway man uh, once upon a time, Joe. Well, maybe they do have extra costs at the weekend. Or do you get... Let's be let's be full disclosure here, Pat. Now you have to you have to come clean. Do you get an extra Yorkshire pud? Which oh, are, there's a few, a few apparently a few bells, extra bells and whistles, Joe, uh, like Yorkshire pud. But I, I I go to a certain like most people go to different hostelries and look whether it's Yorkshire pud or um, uh, whatever, it, it's the same price, Joe. It doesn't jump from seventy to twenty four. I mean, it, I think it's outrageous. Right? Twenty four euros for for a car, for a roast of the day with a few extra bells and whistles. Yeah, but now you're telling me you do get extra. Well. The, the gentleman that I, that I questioned, he said to me, oh, there's an extra, get a bit of extra roast the weekend and a bit of this, a bit of garlic. I said, is this guy for real? I said, for God's sake, should any okay. pub get, you, get, you, you get extras. Okay, okay. It's a great reputation. But anyway, to stay there, but by the way, what was the food like? And now you're about to, you, uh, you see, I got that out. You're about to. It's absolutely well, it, gorgeous. No, it, it, it was it, massive. Joe, it was it was gorgeous. But I, I nearly had a cardiac arrest when I when I got the receipt. <laughs> okay, that's Pat on the live line with Joe Duffy. And in the morning on the Ryan Tupperty show, two young actors, Evie O'Brien and Kevin Marr, were talking about how they were inspired by the location of their university campus on the site of the old mental hospital in Grange Gorman. For a new play, it's called The Asylum Workshop, and Ryan was only delighted to see them. It's nice to see young people again. <laughs> uh, except you're not in the middle of exams. In fact, you've just pretty much finished, uh, both studying what, where, Evie, why don't you tell We're me? We're studying drama performance in the Conservatoire in TU Dublin and just submitted our final assignment like a week ago. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. How does it feel? Surreal. Surreal? Very surreal. Because that's the end of it all now. You're in terms of education bar going any further. So mm-hmm. you, you you did your school. You did both the Leaving Cert, obviously. Yeah. And then you, you had a dream to be actors. Indeed. Yeah. Where did it come from as a matter of interest? Let me ask you, Kevin, where, where, did it, where do you think that triggered where you went, I want to do that? Um, I think it was from when I was younger. Um, my sister did drama classes with Anne Kavanagh. And uh, I always wanted to go because you get a jelly after the end of every class. Well, what a better reason. Yeah. And then I started and then kind of got bit by the bug. 
um, and realised that, oh God, I would not be happy doing anything else but this. Stage, uh, uh, TV, cinema, everything or everything. any preference? No, no, everything. no desire. And who do you admire most in the acting world? What sort of uh, people do you kind of go, I love their style or their... I kind of like the old greats. Like I'm a big fan of like Elizabeth Taylor yeah. um, and all of the kind of like 60s people. Okay, great. Yeah. So the, the, the golden age yes. of Hollywood. <laughs> yes, yes. More drama, Cleopatra. Yes. All the big ones, Ben-Hur and all those films that go on for 18 hours. Gone with the wind. <laughs> yeah. That's going back a bit. But you know what I'm talking about. Evie, what about you? Where did you get bitten by the bug or how or what? Well, I was a really shy child and I think I was pretty quickly sent to drama class to try and beat that out of me. Really? Yeah, and then was just majorly bitten by the bug. I went to Betty Ann Norton Theatre School and I'm still there teaching, so I haven't left. Great. <laughs> so were you, were you on were kind of an all-dancing, all-singing kid? I'm very much speech and drama. Speech and drama. Sorry, sorry, excuse me. I was... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I a little frisson came into the studio there as I realised I, I, I went off-piste. No, no, uh, it's all good now. I'm more open to it all now, but as God. a kid I would have been very much, oh no, very much speech and drama, so... And what who, who did you admire? Who do you admire in, in the acting world? And, and So many people. I yeah. feel like it's so hard to pinpoint and now I'm really excited by newer people, people that are coming on the scene, you know, a lot of Irish actors who I'm kind of seeing again and again on Irish stages that it's just like, it's kind of amazing to start not tracking people's journeys, but sort of going, oh, this is where they came from and all this stuff. So I'm kind of just trying to soak in everybody rather than having like specific people. Just icons that you you look up to. Although I have to say, when I think of talking to Saoirse Ronan here, Mm -hmm. when she was probably a bit younger than you guys are now, and then seeing where she is, and again, Jesse Buckley being in another yeah. person, you just go, wow, like we do have, I mean, when you think of the Oscar nominees and the, when the Oscars just gone by, the amount of Irish it's phenomenal. Uh, in, in every facet of the of the world, which is Richie Bainham or uh, directors or whatever it might be, we're doing something right. So, you know, I think you're, you're, you're okay to, in any other country, you might be kind of going, well, good luck with that. Yeah. But here there seems to be hope. I mean, for, for young actors, do you, do you feel that there's, there's a, a good future for you guys? Yeah, definitely. And there's also a load of studios and everything that are being built and opening up. So there's going to yeah. be more stuff that's going to be coming over here. Yes, uh, filming. It's a very healthy environment yeah. for TV and mm. movies and whatever they're doing right, whether it's the tax breaks or the crewing of these mm. things. Yeah. It's great. And locations. Mm. So great. This is a very good, positive news yeah. story. And Ryan asked Evie about the Grange Gorman campus. You, you mentioned the, the, the course you're in and the campus is really important to where to where we're going this morning. Why don't you take the lead here, Evie? Tell us about the campus because Grange Gorman for my generation had connotations of a psychiatric hospital and uh, and before and and before quite quite a dark um history before it became this beautiful campus that it is now so give us a sense of the place as much as you can totally yeah so we moved out there i mean dit was scattered all over the shop and slowly and surely they moved as much of us as they could over to grange gorman and they've re they've opened the campus up hugely so grange gorman was quite closed off and, you know, big walled and they've kind of opened it. So there's a mixture now of very contemporary buildings that are still being built, as well as a lot of refurbished buildings, which were part of the original mental hospital and which were part of the penitentiary. There's churches, there's a mortuary. All of these buildings are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we moved out there in second year. It was us and the music students who were the first ones there. The place was empty. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the place still has a real sense of its past for sure. And I think they've done a really amazing job in continuing to have that while still opening the campus up even in where our kind of nearest cafeteria is is what was the front of the mental hospital yes and you can still see between the windows in that cafeteria 
um, where the little rooms would have been in the mental hospital. Right. Yeah. Does it, is it a bit creepy? I mean, uh, that's not probably a very fair question, but is it, is there an eeriness to it or have they managed to, because you're marrying two very different things. Mm. Well, you're a place of, of kind of darkness, if you like, and with a place of great hope and, and yeah. excitement. You know, yeah. what, a, what a strange collision. There's definitely um, an eeriness to the place. Like okay. the lower house, which was the original Richmond Lunatic Asylum, you Go down there. I don't like to have my lunch down there because that says I, everything. Yeah, yeah. I do. You yeah. do. Uh, do you know what? That also says everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why don't you like to have your lunch down um, there? And it just—you can feel the past. You can see those those uh, windows where the old cells yeah. were and everything like that. And it just—it it creeps me out a little. Yeah. And why do you like to have your lunch there? I think there's a real presence on site, mm. and there, that was a presence I was kind of aware of before we delved into the material and we started researching the play that we're working on now and the more we got into that the more it kind of felt it felt like a bit of a respect thing and it also felt like we were kind of involved in the world and to be able to deal with the material that we're dealing with and to be able to be where a lot of this material would have taken place yeah it is immersive yeah um, so I think there's a, an energy there and for me it's not a creepy energy but there is a, there's a presence and there's a history that kind of feels quite alive uh, Just as a kind of a, a quick recap for, for people about the, the, the Grange Gorman it was a prison mm-hmm. a workhouse that mm-hmm. you know that they're they, again very disturbing yeah. uh, buildings in our, in our history uh, a psychiat- psychiatric hospital um, and of course women were, who were to be transported to Australia yeah. were kept there um, it was the Richmond Asylum in 1814 um, and then it became the, the largest, uh, one of the largest uh, regional mental hospitals, St. Brendan's. And in 1985, there were just under a thousand patients. It closed in 2013. It was only down the road uh, and there were only 65 patients left there. And now, as we know, it's the campus that you're in. And you mentioned there uh, a play which was commissioned by Grange Gorman Development Agency and TU Dublin. Um, and I'm fascinated by this play. Who wants to take the lead on this and in terms of what it is and where it came from? Evie, why don't you just kick okay. us off there and we'll bring Kevin in a moment. Well, we were approached in the end of second year by our acting lecturer, Peter McDermott, and he had they, the college had received a grant to commission playwright Colin Murphy Great. to write a piece of theatre about the history of Grange Gorman. And obviously, where do you start with that? I mean, you've seen yourself. There's a huge, huge history with the campus and with the site. And it was so many different things. So a process kind of began with Pete and Colin gained access to the National Archives and a huge amount of digging was done. Um, and Colin is particularly an amazing researcher. So yeah. a lot of his plays are kind of very documentary based and he takes all this research and history and uses it. So effectively, the piece of theatre is it's the Asylum Workshop. And it is kind of a workshop. It's a documentary drama. So it's using verbatim letters. It's using testaments, um, files, things that really happened. And it's being tied together in a performance setting. So it kind of during the process, it was that question of how can we tell the story of the psychiatric hospital in a truthful, respectful way? And really the conclusion to that was take the material that we have. And Ryan asked Kevin about the experience of researching for the play. Were you horrified uh, or were you, did it confirm what you thought was, was, was about right in, in when you started reading these letters and, and learning about this past? It was uh, very much, uh, not horrified, but it, it was a jarring uh, feeling, you know, to see 
the words that were used, even the word lunatic or the fact that idiocy was like a... Yeah, a, a, a like a diagnosis. A, a diagnosis, yeah, yeah. yeah. The man's an idiot and yeah. therefore he has to be in this asylum. Yeah. I mean, really, it's, it is extraordinary. Um, also, would, you know, you, your generation is very uh, up to speed with mental health issues, identifying them and, and dealing with them in a way that when you think of this um, methodology is a million miles away. Did you, did yeah. you find that as you were looking at yeah, it? Yeah, no, 100%. And, and there's definitely a thing of, you know, uh, there was a good portion of people who were in there who were just put in there because, you know, they, it was one less mouth to feed at home or, right. you know, um, there are things of postnatal depression and things like that that people didn't fully understand. And the wife then was then put into the Richmond Asylum. Extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, that That's what we tended to do. And I don't think it's just a uniquely Irish thing. If people didn't fit, yeah. you lock them up yeah. yeah, and that seemed to be the way for a lot of people and uh, there were a lot of probably completely mentally intact people who might have just been who might have hit a wall for a little while but they were just 100% lock away and throw away I think key. with that too though you ended up having a mixture of people who were in fact mentally ill and people who weren't exactly and no one was really receiving the treatment no one knew how to deal with that were you struck by the amount of women that were sent uh, away to this asylum 100% yeah um I mean, you see that coming up more and more. And within this play particularly, um, Colin has taken a bit of a feminist angle. So we see that kind of line, that that female voice throughout the piece. Um, because, you know, just there there is a difference, I think, in terms of when you look at the letters and how things are being dealt with. And a huge thing that, you know, the link between that kind of idea of moving from institution to institution. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of girls who would have been in Magdalene laundries or who were in kind of reformatory schools who ended up in the asylum and women who were in the penitentiary or in the workhouse and um, you know people who gave birth in the asylum yeah. people who never left there's there's a huge kind of female voice there that I think the play tries to and does look at they were bounced around from yeah. one dark corner to another and, yeah. and, and now a little voice uh, their voice being heard maybe from the shadows, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is important too. Um, do you want to give us a sense of this? Because th- we're talking about a play that is has mined the archive. So these are the voices of real people, um, concerned relatives writing to say, I hope you're okay and how's it going? Um, patients saying, I shouldn't be here or I, sh- I shouldn't have been sent here. Um, I'd love to hear a flavour of it. I mean, I, I'm not putting you on the spot. Kevin, would you, what, do you want to tell us a bit about something or... Yeah, um, so, you you know, one of the characters uh, in the show uh, that I play uh, does get insulin treatment, Mm. um, which they thought would be that they thought it would cure schizophrenia. So for a period of about 50 to 60 days, they would inject the patients uh, with insulin. They would go into then having a seizure um, and they would then pass out and they'd be injected with glucose to bring them back to life again with mm. no kind of recollection of of what had happened um, and you know there were side effects like obesity brain damage like a, a lot of things but yeah it, it was a, an intense thing to kind of watch and uh, to research okay uh, so what are you going to do you're going to read or, or, yeah. or is it you're going from 
Recall? You know, yeah. You have, you have no papers in front no, of you? No, we don't. Do you, want to, we? do you want to set? No, you're a professional actor. <laughs> <laughs> you pass your exams. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this, uh, this is the real world. Yeah. Uh, you're released into the wild. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to set it up for us, Evie? Yeah. So we have um, a couple of little bits from letters here now, which are all verbatim letters, which were recovered from the archive. Okay. Um, so we'll just get stuck into those. Please do. Yeah. Dear doctor, I am writing on behalf of my son, who was a patient at this hospital. I understood and he going there that he will be kept. But he has been removed to St. Eta's Hospital without consulting me. I find it very difficult to go out so far to see him as my means does not allow it. Why was he not left there? Doctor, my illness may have had elements of a mental illness, but I would also say that it was an economic one and a question of whether I was to ever get anywhere at home. To simply declare a person mentally unbalanced and confine him to hospital was not a total handling of the situation. As it turned out, I had to go to England to work, and the jobs I had were never any good. I regret to have to inform you, Doctor, that if your way of working cured me in one small respect, it spoiled my life from other angles of view. Dearest sister, I know life in hospital is a bit lonely at times, but please God, you will be home soon. I hope the insulin treatment has made an improvement... And besides, the rest will do you good. Uh, I'm still working at Boots, <laughs> toiling away. Oh, I was so glad to see you've been able to get to Croke Park during the season. We listen to it on the radio here. Dear Charlie, just wanted to let you know that I arrived in London safely. Delighted to say I'm feeling tip-top. I must say, it's great to be free again. This time I shall be very wise. No more nonsense. So far, no job, but tomorrow I'll go about the town and see what's cooking. I hope you're keeping up your heart and on your way out of the Gorman. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, that is, uh, first of all, thank you for that, because in that very brief couple of minutes, you get a total sense of A, the archive, but B, this uh, multitude of lives that become entangled in, in this uh, bizarre bizarre web of a story. Evie O'Brien and Kevin Marr on The Ryan Tupperty Show. Now, it was 50 years ago when Erskine Hamilton Childers was elected as the fourth president of Ireland and the first president to die in office. Dermot Ferreter, professor in modern politics at UCD, was talking to Claire in the morning. A fascinating career and legacy to to look at this morning and and a lot to get through. We'll go back to the beginning because he was reared and educated in England, wasn't he, uh, Erskine Childers? But he had to come back and make that heartbreaking trip back home to say goodbye to his father in 1922. You can only imagine the trauma that that was involved for a 16-year-old to be summonsed from his school in England to say goodbye to his father. And his father was executed in November 1922. His father, Erskine Sr., of course, was an intriguing revolutionary because of his background. He had been a British civil servant and even an intelligence officer with the the Royal Air Force. And he had the zeal of the convert um, and became uh, very prominent on the anti-treaty side and was close to Eamon de Valera. And of course, his his execution was, was very controversial. He was older. He had a higher profile than most of those who were executed. And there are questions, of course, over its legality. But think about that moment when 16-year-old Erskine Jr. says his goodbyes and his father asks him to seek out those who are going to execute him and forgive them and shake their hands. And he asked him to devote his future to reconciliation. So he was placing quite a heavy burden mm-hmm. on, on the young Erskine's shoulders. But it was also, I suppose, a measure of, of how he had come to terms with what was about to happen. 
uh, to him. But of course, Erskine had to deal with that legacy and it was complicated and it was a difficult challenge. So what happened in his young life then? He went back, did he, to England to finish his education? He did. He ended up in Cambridge in Trinity College studying history and politics. He finished his BA. Uh, He was very privileged in relation to his education and it looked like he might go into business. I mean, he did come back in August 1923 to speak at a Sinn Féin rally and he did have ardently Republican views at that point but they were tempered and they did moderate and he then went into business he worked briefly as a travel agent in Paris and then he came back to Ireland in 1931 he was really adopted by de Valera uh, in a political sense but also perhaps initially in a business sense because he worked as an advertising manager for the Irish press which had been established by de Valera in 1931 so it did look like he, he could um, carve out that career in business but he ended up becoming involved in the national executive of Fianna Fáil and he was very committed himself then to the idea of a future in politics. That was where he wanted to go but there was a complication. He wasn't an Irish citizen Mm -hmm. and he stood for election to the Shannad in 1938 unsuccessfully and question marks were raised over his citizenship. Uh, It was assumed that he would be automatically entitled to citizenship because of his father because his father had an Irish mother because they were connected with the Bartons uh, of Glendalough in Wicklow. That was his mother's, his his grandmother's uh, family. But it turned out, of course, that because Erskine had been executed before the formal creation of the Free State in December 1922, he couldn't qualify Ah, that weight. It's like the granny rule in football. Yeah, it was. So he was granted a certificate of naturalisation which was allowed under the 1935 Nationality and Citizenship Act for those uh, who had parents who had rendered distinguished service to the Irish nation, God, which of course... It, it, that sounds like a piece of legislation had. that might have been put in place just for him. Well, it, was, it wasn't put in place just <laughs> for him, but it, it certainly worked to his advantage. And it, it meant, of course, that he could now forge his career in politics. And he was elected to the Dáil in 1938. And he was continuously re-elected over three different constituencies, initially uh, in Athlone um, and then in Westmeath and later in Monaghan. So he why, was... Why, why was he elected in those constituencies? Why did he But it was interesting because he lived in Dublin. Yeah. They were trying to find a place to put him. Um, and of course, you know, Fianna Fáil at that stage in the 1930s was uh, cementing its grip on power and it was looking at different constituencies and, and where he might fit. Uh, the fact that he was a Protestant was also interesting because he was very much in a minority when it came to Fianna Fáil politicians. Um, and eventually when he went to Monaghan, there was a logic at work there uh, that there was a substantial Protestant vote uh, in Monaghan, but also a substantial Republican vote and that he would be a good fit for that particular constituency. Um, so he was returned continuously uh, to the Doyle until 1973. Returned continuously, but it wasn't until the later elections that he, he did really well. Oh, I he mean, wasn't a poll topper. You yeah. know? This is the intriguing thing about Erskine Childers. Um, he's always a bit outside of both the political party and of Irish political culture. And in, a, in some respects, this is a legacy that he carried forward from his father's era. Because even as a revolutionary and a very committed Irish Republican, his father was always to a degree distrusted both by the British and by Irish Republicans because of his outsider status. He had a background in British intelligence. Uh, he wasn't fully trusted. There, there was an element to that 
uh, around Erskine as well, even though he was a very different character. Uh, he wasn't your typical Fianna Foiler. Um, and of course, he's also surrounded in his early uh, political career by veterans of the Civil War. Uh, and they have mixed views on him. You know, de Valera is very much his champion, but that doesn't necessarily go for other contemporaries of Eamon de Valera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he, but at the same time, uh, he's able to uh, relate to people. Uh, he's an interesting mixture. Uh, he's a very strong sense of self. Sometimes he can come across as being very arrogant. But there was also a certain humility that voters responded to. And he was very honest. And he believed in honesty when it came to politics. And he was a good campaigner. And Jermyn spoke about Childers' character. He carried great dignity within him and forbearance. Um, but he was also somebody who was detached. You wouldn't find him socialising now after Doyle proceedings. Uh, he was very considered, very measured. He was obsessed with data and administration and statistics. He was always composing memoranda which drove his colleagues mad at times because he was always sticking his nose into other briefs mm-hmm. uh, beyond his own. But he had an insatiable appetite for information and for memoranda. Um, and he mediated on a lot of, of different matters, sometimes to the point of tedium and pomposity. Um, and there were those within politics who found that very frustrating. Annoying people in Fianna Fáil. Annoying people in Fianna Fáil, but also uh, that he was too verbose, um, that he was very long-winded and he could be quite pompous. So he is that very curious mix. And of course, he has that upper class accent, uh, which can jar with people mm-hmm. as well. So he's, he's not necessarily your typical fit for Fianna Fáil. Did he become a minister th- after his first election to the Dáil? No, he was on the backbenches until 1944 and he spoke a lot about industry and agriculture. He was very interested in agriculture. He always wanted to be minister for agriculture. He never became minister for agriculture, but he became a junior minister in local government in the late 1940s and we would associate him with the Public Libraries Act of 1947 and this was a good fit for him as well. He was big into the idea of community uh, self-reliance, promotion of adult education. He wanted the library service to be invigorated and the nucleus of an adult education movement to get children reading as well. So he's associated with that. Uh, And he later, of course, takes on different briefs, um, including in relation to uh, transport and power, uh, fisheries, tourism. Uh, Eventually he becomes Minister for Health. When you look at the state archives, he's all over them uh, because he covered so many different briefs and he had mixed success. He had very strong views on things like forestry and the development of tourism. He's very associated with the development of roads policy and engineering. Uh, so he has wide interests. Mm-hmm. And again, as I mentioned, he, he, he reads very voraciously um, and he's very demanding when it comes to uh, the civil servants. He married very young, didn't he? Did I see he married at 19? He married at 19, yeah. He ended up marrying twice. His first wife died in, in 1950, uh, Ruth. Um, and some people would be familiar, of course, with Nessa Childers, uh, who yeah. was the daughter of his second marriage. Um, and he had five children in his five children first in his first marriage. marriage. You know, so he had a very busy home life. David Ferriter from today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Catherine Thomas was talking about the useful travel tech that could make your holidays perfect. All right, you are heading to the airport. You've made sure you've packed the passport. You've checked twice. You've cancelled the milk. You've gotten someone to water the plants. But have you thought about the useful travel tech you could be bringing with you, whether you're flying away or even driving to the coast? Noise cancelling headphones and tracking tags for your bags uh, could be your best holiday buddies. So to talk me through it all, Elaine Burke, the host of For Tech's Sake podcast, is here to give us a breakdown of what is good to have in the hand luggage and what's good to have in the suitcase. Elaine, good to see you. Yeah, it's great to be here. 
So let's start with the noise cancelling headphones because they are just non-negotiable in our house and in our suitcases. We've got to have them in. They were very expensive, but now you can get them much cheaper, can't you? Yeah, like they, they can go as low as I think maybe <coughs> 50 euro for a good pair. Now, I would say when it comes to noise cancelling, you do get bang for your book or no bangs for your book as the case may be because the, the more expensive ones are more advanced in terms of the noise cancelling technology. Okay. But if you're not too fussy about the noise cancelling, if you don't mind a few little things getting through then the lower end ones will be absolutely fine for you. Um, and one thing I would say though for headphones for the over the ear ones, they are great. I find them more comfortable for the long haul yeah, kind of too. things. But I wouldn't <clears throat> advise wearing them for takeoff and landing because you should wait until the cabin pressure has kind of equalised to put something like that in your ears because you might get discomfort when your ears don't pop correctly. And so okay. like that's, that's a little pro tip That's a good tip. Yeah. I, what I also like about them as well is that if you don't want to talk to the person next to you, it's a very clear signal that, you know, the little in-ears people might not see. But if you want a little bit of space and a little bit of privacy. Yeah, 100%. Kind of a good one. eye mask on and some over-ear <laughs> headphones over and no one will talk to you. Totally, totally. Um, all right, the other dread, I suppose, for people these get days can be their uh, mobile running out of battery. I think it's something that we all panic about. So I generally keep a charger in the hand luggage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you've got airport delays or anything like that. Um, but these portable chargers and the power banks, they're a good investment too. Oh, 100%. Like I, I've had... Um, uh, portable chargers that I got in goodie bags years ago at tech events that I still would bring on holidays with me because not only for your phone like say if you're bringing like I bring a Polaroid away with me like but it's charged via oh, USB school. yeah but it's got a USB charger on it so if I think that that's going to run low on battery I can bring the portable charger for that like if you get a big enough one you could charge up a laptop charge up an iPad uh, what you're looking at there is the capacity of the portable charger so okay. you'll see these figures that have an M capital A H and that's the milliamp capacity and they're normally in the thousands so you're looking at for an iPad mini you need at least 6,000 milliamps to fully charge that battery 11,000 for an iPad Pro uh, phones like if they're really powerful phones probably in around 8,000 milliamps for them so look okay, at well the capacity I haven't of what a you're clue buying what that actually I, I know what you mean like it's, it's a bigger uh, drive into it yeah. but in terms of space say in your hand luggage you know you can the, the little ones for the phones are small enough and they're not heavy so are you talking about if you need to charge a laptop or a tablet are there lightweight versions of those oh yeah like they, okay. they, they basically can pack a lot of that power into the size of a, an everyday smartphone for, okay. for a good bit of power because they don't have any other components of the smartphone to contend with so they can pack a lot in there but do just check the capacity is going to give you what you need and charge up enough devices if you wanted to do multiple things and charge it before you go away yes. so that it actually has a charge in it, it as well. It's ready to go. Um, I know it's an obvious one and it's not new but travel adapters it's the kind of panic when you get to the other end and you've like you've forgotten it and trying to find one so that's one to remember to put in as yeah, well. Yeah right? so often forgotten. I, I leave mine with my passport. Burn with Catherine Thomas in the afternoon. And that's it from Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time.